0: Everyone, Welcome back to Podside Picnic. I am here with the Yog sothoth to my Nyarlathotep, uh, <laughs> Pete. How does <laughs> that <always>? even work? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're going to find out more about the lore of the mythos later in the, the Lovecraft Month, Pete. But this turns out to be the first, uh, <laughs> this is the first Lovecraft Month episode that we're recording, actually. We haven't even recorded our intro yet, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But... We're recording now because we have the opportunity to talk with one of our favorite recurring guests. Uh, you know, she, she recurs like a uh, a wonderful, but in some ways ominous dream in a Lovecraft <laughs> story. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's, it's Olivia at AV Club from No Cartridge After Dark fame. Welcome back.
1: Hello. Thank you. Thank you for having me back.
0: <laughs> Absolutely
2: Well, I, I've got to do it I'm sorry You might call her The Haunter of No Heart Cartridge After
0: Dark
1: Wow Wow
0: That was Okay So we love
1: he, a tie-in <laughs> We do
0: we, we really love to hear it And I, just to explain Before we dive in The story we're discussing Is Lovecraft's I just found out today It's his last short story He ever wrote So we are going backwards In multiple ways here uh, And it is The Haunter of the Dark Which is one of my favorite Lovecraft stories It's one of the shorter ones you are looking to get into his work uh, and we made Olivia read it. She did her homework yet again for us. Um, so, also, thank you for that, Olivia.
1: Yes, of course. I love to have my nose in a book.
0: <laughs> awesome. right well, you're going to fit in around here then. <laughs> uh, can,
2: Olivia, can I tell you about my experience of getting ready for this episode?
1: I would love for you to tell me.
2: Okay. So um, last night I was like, okay, I know Olivia's coming, and Connor has told me at least three times what Lovecraft story we're doing. And I can't (laughs) remember which one it is. And I'm too embarrassed to bug him. So I combed through your timeline because you took screenshots of yourself (laughs) reading the book. And then I Googled those words to find out what we were doing.
1: Um, well, I'm I'm glad that I was live tweeting my experience <laughs> <then>. <laughs> to save you the embarrassment that we now have to uh, yeah, replay yeah. now on a stage. Well, now that I've accomplished
2: <laughs> the goal, I don't feel as bad about it. But yeah, you you really did me a solid there by live tweeting what you were up to. Keep it up.
1: <laughs> I like I like to. I think that a lot of times people don't tweet about what they're reading as much as they do what they're watching on tv or movies or it's like you'll see people do like 50 tweets about one episode of game of thrones as they're as they're watching it but like you don't see people talking about what they're reading so i like to model the kinds of behaviors i wish other people's would do
0: <laughs> oh man i'm just gonna applaud a little bit for that because that is like that's exactly the attitude that we need for this show yes uh and thank you, for, as always, for tweeting about Dune Month and uh, starting to tweet about Lovecraft Month. Um, we're totally, I wish everyone would tweet about what they were reading, to, 100%. Like, I wish that was, like, the dominant narrative art tweeting mode. Sorry to video games. I know that you're, you're a big fan of that, you know, without further ado, like, what, you know, we made you read this. Um, what did you make of this one?
1: Um. Uh, Well, so like my experience with reading Lovecraft is probably primarily. Oh my gosh, I always forget what it starts with. It's at the Mountains of Madness. I always forget what prepositions at the beginning. Um, Yeah. So like my experience with it is more that like frozen Antarctic setting, whereas this one felt like a very hot story (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense but like um the constant references and like the the role of light and yellow and burning and the sense like it it seems like almost opposite of what my experience was so far
0: well I I'm gonna jump in a little bit and say that uh if you've ever, like, taken a train through Rhode Island, it was actually, which is where this is set, because, of course, Lovecraft was from Providence, Rhode Island, and a lot of his stuff is set in and around there, and this one is set in Providence. Um, and I'm jumping in just to say that if that if you travel to the state of Rhode Island, you can kind of see why the, the original colonists sort of forced all of their uh, unwanted misfits to move to Rhode Island, and it's because the state <laughs> is a giant salt swamp it's just a big swamp. <laughs> and uh, therefore, I, I bring this up just to say, it's probably pretty muggy in Providence in the summer.
1: <laughs> it always surprised me. Like, I don't I know that he's American, but like, I'm always surprised whenever it's like um, and he's from Milwaukee. Like, I just like don't expect that in the middle of this <laughs> spooky story. Um, I don't know if that's the same for y'all, but there's just something about the writing that doesn't seem American like it seems almost like it takes on like an English syntax in some way that keeps like cueing me oh. to a different geography
0: without a doubt I mean like gosh we could go I could rant on, and on about this but like I, I think one thing I was talking about people that this beforehand actually I was saying there's so many parts of this story that I've reread it like 10 times that I want to just do a close reading of and I might do a whole episode where I just do a like line by line close reading of a Lovecraft story um to sort of satiate that part of myself. But I will say that one of my big beliefs about Lovecraft is that it's easy to make fun of his prose and in many ways deserved because he was writing in the twenties and thirties and trying to act like he was writing, uh, you know, far before that. Like he's sort of trying to, he's trying to something that was already like a century old in his time. Hanging out with Lord Byron kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, he was trying to be like early 19th century at the latest in some ways, but at the same time, I think that that's a big part of how he invented his own, Uh, particular, I wouldn't even say aesthetic, almost his own ontology, his own sense of reality, but that's like a whole deeper thing. However, sorry to bounce away from what you were saying. I totally, I think Pete and I probably totally agree with, with that impression that you're getting.
2: I, I think it's safe to say that, uh, without going too deep down this rabbit hole, Lovecraft was very attached to his European origins and wanted to connect
0: (laughs) with them in his writing.
1: Uh-huh. I his, think that's probably year- going to be a recurring theme this month. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and he would have been horrified at the word European. He would have said, I have English origins. Thank you very <laughs> much. Anglo-Saxon origins. Oh, and we're uh, back to Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I wouldn't go back to Lydia. I just like, it, in the case of this story, I mean, it's it's jarring. This guy was a contemporary. This man is a contemporary of like F. Scott Fitzgerald. Right. It, it in some ways this is this is long ago, but not that long ago. It's not unfathomably far in the past. But like, if I told you who was writing at the same time as you know some of those high modernist writers, who's a contemporary of Joyce and Virginia Woolf, you'd just be like,
1: what? <laughs>
0: so it it. Okay, I'm sorry, love to derail you. Uh, keep keep going. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no, I mean that's exactly what I was thinking, and I think that there's a lot of things that I don't understand why his writing is appealing because I'll see something, like, that he uses, uh, like, low-frequency words in a high-frequency, like, we just, like, keep hearing about... Uh, what is it like chaos and like he'll use yawn over and over again that you like don't expect to see more than like once in a story and you see it a lot um, and it's not off-putting like it uh, it works well for him and I don't exactly know why it doesn't bother me I mean obviously it bothers me enough to notice but like I like it.
2: Yeah. Well, there's something like there's if you sat down and read Lovecraft and you're like, I am going to get annoyed. Like you wouldn't have to stretch your brain muscle very much (laughs) to get pissed off by this guy. But there's some genuinely wonderful things happening here. I've always felt like he has somehow managed to extract a new way to be scared like not from reality like everybody's scared of the unknown but like previous people who are writing in horror didn't really connect with the fear of the unknown in the same way he did at least that's my belief
1: and he describes a like a sensation that can't be fully known and it it is like this um the feeling of being in a nightmare where there's time dilation that doesn't really make sense. And the architecture of the story doesn't really make sense. And so you can never fully grasp what you're, what you're reading. And so you imagine um, your imagination is so much worse than whatever he could even describe.
0: Yeah. I mean, there the classic Lovecraftian move is to do a lot of maudlin uh, description of things, melodramatic that we in a creative writing workshop would say like, dude, just, Cut all of these descriptors, (laughs) cut all of these modifiers, like just, just calm down and get to the point. Like he does a lot of, he does do a lot of description, but then I think what you landed on live is so important. He sort of pushes beyond that. And he sort of, there's a point where like, he gives up on description and says like, you know, sort of things are stretching beyond where you can see things are stretching beyond what you can imagine. There's always something further that sort of like magnifies and intensifies and renders unknowable, all these things that he's described in like sort of classic Gothic horror detail. Uh, and that is gosh, there's so much to discuss here. Um, I want to, I want to ground this to say, so just to give everyone a little bit of a preface, if you don't know what the Haunter of the Dark is about. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, there's a writer and artist living in Providence, a contemporary of Lovecraft's and he becomes obsessed. He's looking over Providence uh, from near Brown, Brown university and on his hillside, there's this old, ominous church in what is now, I guess we're told, an Italian, predominantly Italian immigrant neighborhood, but it was also an Irish neighborhood. So it's sort of like Catholic. And and to Lovecraft, Catholic immigrants are like the most terrifying people on earth. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he's looking off into the wilds, you know. So like for him to even go up to this church, this artist named Robert Blake is this is a huge deal. And of course, as he explores the church, he uncovers the sinister history behind it. That connects back to the broader Lovecraft mythos, uh, you know, of that which the Eldritch horrors that lie beyond the stars, and there's something in particular haunting the church, and that's a spoiler-free premise for what this is about. I mean, Liv, what did you think of this story in particular?
1: Um, yeah, it's interesting that it goes from like you—you're told the end of the story at the beginning, like you know what's going to happen, and then so then you just kind of see the descent from. Um, like the beginnings of maybe this place exists, maybe it doesn't. like you're finding your ways to this church where you know something horrible is gonna happen. Um I don't know it's it's i I don't know that I've read enough of Lovecraft to say how it fits in with his work, otherwise. um,
0: I wouldn't say that's atypical he He does love to preface like a lot of the setup for him is often a fairly archaic move of saying. Hey, you know, you're going to doubt the veracity of the clearly fictional, you know, like you're going to sort of doubt the you're going to think that that I'm doing a fiction within a fiction and no one even believe like what what I'm saying in the world of this story. So therefore, I'm going to authenticate it at the front end by saying this is like the recovered journal or letters. Uh, you know, that's often he does that in Call of Cthulhu and really all over. Um, so, yeah. yeah, this is this is pretty typical for him. Um, this might be a good spot. Do you guys mind if I read a little bit from the opening to give people a sense of what we're talking about? No, good idea. Cool. So, <clears throat> The Haunter of the Dark, dedicated to Robert Block, which Pete's going to tell us about. And the, has an epigraph. I have seen the dark universe yawning where the black planets roll without aim, where they roll in their horror unheeded, without knowledge or luster or name. And this is attributed to just Nemesis. So, which is one of his poems? Like it's, <laughs> it's kind of amazing
2: to to like reference one of your own poems for one of your books. I'm impressed,
0: really. Yeah, it's it's a bold move. I agree. So um, <laughs> here's how the story starts. Cautious investigators will hesitate to challenge the common belief that Robert Blake sounds like Robert Block, doesn't it? Was killed by lightning or by some profound nervous shock derived from an electrical discharge. It is true that the window he faced was unbroken, but nature, capital N, has shown, spelled with an E, herself capable of many freakish performances. The expression on his face may easily have arisen from some obscure muscular source unrelated to anything he saw, while the entries in his diary are clearly the result of a fantastic imagination aroused by certain local superstitions and by certain old matters he had uncovered. As for the anomalous conditions at the deserted church on Federal Hill, the shrewd analyst is not slow in attributing them to some charlatanry, conscious or unconscious, with at least some of which Blake was secretly connected. And uh, that's, that's a good taste of this. The first paragraph, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and read sort of semi-randomly, give you an idea of like how his, uh, his description work. So here he, this is when Blake gets to the church. The vacant church was in a state of great decrepitude, Some of the high stone buttresses had fallen, and several delicate finials lay half lost among the brown neglected weeds and grasses. The sooty gothic windows were largely how the obscurely painted panes could have survived so well. I'm sorry, the, the sooty gothic windows were largely unbroken, though many of the stone mullions were missing. Blake wondered how the obscurely painted panes could have survived so well, in view of the known habits of small boys the world over. The massive doors were intact and tightly closed. Around the top of the bank wall, fully enclosing the grounds, was a rusty iron fence whose gate, at the head of a flight of steps from the square, was visibly padlocked. The path from the gate to the building was completely overgrown. Desolation and decay hung like a pall above the place, and in the birdless eaves and black, ivyless walls, Blake felt a touch of the dimly sinister beyond his power to define. So, again, you see how we make the move from careful perhaps extraneous, overly uh, modified description of a place that does set a heavy atmosphere. And then at the end, it's pushed towards, okay, there's something here we can't even use language to describe. Um, sorry, I've I've been talking over live this whole time. And much like Lovecraft, I'm canceled for doing so. Uh, no, that was a good moment, Connor. Yeah. yeah, that was, <laughs> I'm really glad you did that. Okay, cool. Um so, like, Liv, you know, you, you met some interesting linguistic things about, like, high-frequency and low-frequency words. Like, that, you seem to have a specific linguist impression of Lovecraft prose that I'm interested in hearing more about.
1: Um, I wouldn't say that I, <laughs> like I say, don't expect me to ever be smart. Um, it's just, like, something that I, I notice when reading is usually whenever you see those, uh, I mean, I, I think that you would agree that that's a low-frequency word even, um subjectively like people aren't constantly yawning and works and it's this um this like reflexive reflexive act of your body and like this the story really seems to relate to bodies in a lot of ways like that like yellow decay odor uh, says pestilence to me says disease um and i know that this um, like this is the last story before he he died from cancer. So I don't know if there is some relation there to thinking about the body as um, as its own whore, like trying to know your own body. And
0: okay. That is really interesting. First of all, you're right. This was, yeah, he died young. Um, it's kind of, his life was relative, was fairly sad in a lot of ways. Um, sad and full of terror. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, you know, he was a very, I mean, to say that he was a neurotic guy doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. But, um, you said something really interesting, which is like to me one of my main observations about Lovecraft is there's all there's almost never, if ever, any sexual energy in his stories. He's like very desexualized, and probably he he may well I don't want to speculate too much, but he may well have been asexual. I, I don't know, or just deeply repressed. I don't know how that works, but like, yeah. um, he you know I think of him as abstracting a lot from the from the body. But you make a great point, which is that a lot of the sort of the physical horror the constant feature and decay and the disgust of the creatures that he imagines that are sort of like indescribably awful. Like that can be read. You're totally right. Uh, as thinking about the horror of one's own body, just abstracted to sort of like this cosmic horror plane. And I hadn't thought about that at all. That's very interesting.
1: It just seems different from the other work that I've read from him and that it's like not so much about the, the archeological, like these things haven't really been preserved. They're kind of, very present and and the and decay is so much more active than like finding something buried in the eyes or preserved in the eyes.
0: That's true. Yeah. And, and I also, before we, I wanted to jump back to something you said as well uh, about like high frequency, low frequency words. If you, you probably have picked up on this jokes already a little bit on Twitter, but like if you read enough Lovecraft, there are specific modifiers that he uses over and over and over again in his work that are highly, that are like. He owns them essentially. I would say at this point, like Lovecraft owns the word cyclopean. Yeah, (laughs) he owns he owns the word eldritch in a sense, eldritch horrors. He and um, non Euclidean, squat. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Non Euclidean geometry. He's always referring to as well. Um, And there's probably a couple others that I'm leaving out, but I can't
2: um, think of a horror author more scared of geometry than this guy.
1: Well, yeah, I think it works, too. Like, it's definitely, like, what it feels like when you're in a nightmare and you know that you're in a place, but you don't really understand. Like, none of the geometry or geography of it makes sense. Um, and and it's so much worse just to put that idea in your mind that you can't uh, fathom the, the geometry than trying to reason it out.
0: Yeah, 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 totally. Um, Pete, I know you had some... Uh, you had a story about the origins of this story.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, there, one of the interesting things about Lovecraft to me was, uh, I mean, he was such a prolific r- letter writer. Like he had uh, Robert E. A. Howard, the guy who did uh, the, like the Conan books, they had an ongoing co- correspondence throughout their lives. And there were a number of other authors who he formed these connections with. One of them was Robert Block, who's most known for writing Psycho. But uh, Block was one of his protégés, essentially. And uh, Robert, uh, he started his career by writing Cthulhuan stories. And the first one he ever wrote was called The Shambler from the Stars. And in The Shambler from the Stars, the main character is essentially H.P. Lovecraft, and he's killed at the end. And in this story, uh, which is essentially a sequel to The Shambler from the Stars, H.P. Lovecraft makes a point of killing Robert Blake... Who, you know, who's sort of, who arguably is a stand in for Robert Block is sort of a screw you right back.
1: I love to write (laughs) fanfic about my friends where they die.
0: (laughs) This would be like Liv making a short indie game about Trev getting killed by a, 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 you know, (laughs) interstellar horror.
1: All right, let's not spoil anything. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love it.
2: Yeah, I think the only one I like more than that is "Imprisoned with the Pharaohs." Do you are you guys familiar with that story? No. I'm not actually. It's the weirdest thing Lovecraft ever done in my in my op- imp, uh, opinion. He co wrote it with Harry Houdini, and it's about Harry Houdini <laughs> escaping
0: the Cthulhu Mythos, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. I hadn't heard about that. I didn't. There's like so many Lovecraft. I, I luckily I bought the entire, the complete fiction of H. P. Lovecraft. So I have a lot of catching up to do. Cause I've basically what I've been doing is rereading the same dozen or so stories for like 12 years or 15 years at this point I guess. Um There's an argument for that though. I mean, uh I I
2: love Lovecraft. I mean, I really think his stories are exceptional and he did something special, but like if you ask me to pick 15% of them and not
0: read the rest again, it wouldn't it wouldn't be traumatic. <laughs> yeah, I I think that most Lovecraft readers would be forced to agree with that. Liv, um on that note, like what what other ones do you ready said? So to add the mountains of madness and then anything else by him?
1: Uh, I had a collection of his short stories at some point. And so I've read some, but I couldn't tell you which ones. <laughs> oh
0: Sorry. yeah. I mean, no, no worries. <laughs> like, I think if you read these, if you read these as a teen, like they have a way of blending together. I actually, my introduction to H.P. Lovecraft was I randomly, I thought I, I was going to the public library when I was like nine or 10 and I found this book with a really spooky cover and the author had a cool name because, you know, Lovecraft is a cool last name. Uh, and, it, you know, I even at my reading level back then, I was like reading all these blurbs that were like talking him up and I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is cool. So there I am reading <laughs> some of his honestly lesser <laughs> short stories. I look at a nine-year-old and being like, this dude is freaking weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> And, you know, I think that like that they all kind of melded together in my head. Um, and they were kind of probably beyond, they were beyond my reading level when I was like in elementary school. Sure. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of language I didn't recognize and I just had to sort of pick my way through it. But that <laughs> kind of, there was sort of an amalgamated feeling that never went away. There was just this feeling of alienation, alienation, but also just this deep fascination with like, all right, what, already I was thinking like, what is this guy, like, what is he peeking into or trying to peek into? Like, what is going on here? And I think, you know, that's that's a feeling that, has animated many a Lovecraft fan over the years, and you can get it at a very young age.
1: I think that I don't... I don't think that I had read anything from him until... Um, in, like, the World of Warcraft game, there is uh, the old gods are, like, um, one of the major forces, and they're they're the Lovecraft, like, old ones. Um, oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so those are, like, the, the big bosses that you don't even really kill. You just... Um, push them back. You were able to push them back for the time being, but they're, they're pretty ever present in the, in the story. And so there's different, only one of them is in the, the original game. Um, but like during the boss fight or whenever you're just like in the zone that it's in, like it'll whisper to individual characters, kind of like the stuff that he writes in his, um, the, that Robert Blake writes in his, his, uh, diary like the lights must not go I must destroy it just like it's calling to me just like very vague stuff it'll it'll whisper to you um, like to different characters and like not everyone gets it all at once so it feels very spooky and like you're not you never know when it's going to happen or if it's going to happen to you whenever it's in the zone um, but I feel like there are some of the better representations of like Lovecraft um, the gods because it's not something you're really supposed to see. And so I feel like maybe they did a better job than like movies or TVs at TV shows that representing um, the horrors of Lovecraft.
0: Yeah. You're, I think you're onto a really important point, which is that one reason that his, his works work as not only as prose fictions, but as short prose fictions is because uh, maintaining that element of pure mystery of sort of like unsol insoluble mystery And ambiguity is really essential to the effect that he achieves with his his especially his main mythos. And like this story, his last story, it devolves into at the end. We know that Robert Blake dies. Uh, Spoiler. Sorry, that's on the first page of the story. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, the last part of the story, the last part of the last story that he ever published is sort of Blake's journals devolving into. Both him sort of fighting internally with, like, his, you know, trying to get away from this force that's calling to him and pulling him in, but then also, like, giving into it and, you know, repeating snippets of chants that we've heard elsewhere in the mythos, Um, but also, as Lovecraft always does, he always, without fail, he smuggles in things you may know from elsewhere in his work. So you have something to ground you. And then he also like introduces snippets of new things that are very tantalizing and that will never ultimately be resolved. And he's always, always doing that. It's that mix of like self-referentiality and deepening your existing lore and like always bringing in these, these scraps that I don't know if he even knew where they were supposed to go. Um, Cause he wasn't as much of like sort of a, a lore completionist as like Tolkien or something. But like uh, it, that, just keeping alive that sense of, of possibility and it's a dread, haunting possibility, um, that is a really fitting way for his last story to go out as sort of strange and frustrating as it arguably is, I would say. Another
2: thing I really like about it is, um, well, I mean, it's. I, I think it would be a very tough argument to make Lovecraft a noir author, but this story in particular, like there's a, there's a building theory feeling of mystery in it like when you're dealing with the investigator or you know the, the like when he's following that trail i feel like pieces of it have a certain level of like uh like mystery boilerplate which mixes very well with this this feeling that uh the questions aren't going to be answered. I like that combination.
0: Yeah, and yeah, I mean this this is a case of in some ways it's like straight up noir because he finds, you know, the body of this reporter who had tried to to investigate all this 40 years prior. And you're like at that point you're like right in that the heart of like, you know, LA noir, the journalist who got killed like Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that stuff.
2: I I also um one of the things that made this story interesting to me was a uh, was a modern connection it's it's like you know when i'm when i'm talking about the uh uh the imprisoned with the pharaohs and uh, just seeing Houdini's name makes me go what the hell with this one having electricity play such a key role in the relationship to the monster i i was fascinated by that as well like that that really um uh, i think he's at his best when you feel
0: like the horror could happen now Yeah. And I mean, God, the role of modernity and and modern technology in Lovecraft, I think, is really fascinating. Um, And in this case, yeah, like he's this character is like really invested in making sure the power does not go out in Providence. But of course, it's the it's the 30s or whatever. And so, you know, the power is constantly going out for whatever reason, because the technology is shit. And that's when this, you know, that's when this evil force can come forth when there's you know any light can send it back. But the big terror is that the power will go out on this. Hill. Uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, that is, and he's always, so he's, you know, the telephone is very important. It actually references him. It says that when he holds up in his room, it's like he ordered all of his food by telephone. So this guy's (laughs) doing like Uber eats in like the, (laughs) (laughs) there should
2: be a follow up to the story where the Haunter of the dark is trapped in that church for 50 years
0: because of a more reliable power system. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. You do do like a future version where it's like, you know, the power grid is like, uh, changing to like mitigate climate change and it's like all right we're gonna have like blackout jubilees every once in a while and then it's like uh oh the hunter in the dark is coming back down <laughs> and it's pissed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um like uh, Olivia, I, I could I'm gonna ask you straight up. Uh did you did you like this story?
1: Yeah, I like this story. Yeah, this is good. Um I like that I don't know, I feel like I'm a sucker for something that puts you in a story where you're supposed to already know other things and, like, he'll just, like, reference other things to, um, to place it in, like, a, a larger canon where he'll reference, like, um, I don't know, there, there's, like, a, a whole string of things where he's, like, oh, the stone used to be here and then it was here and, uh,
0: oh yeah totally I mean this yeah. is a this is the apex of that in lovecraft um this is when he like this is at the point where he's starting to finally get his lore like it's it's fully matured and then of course sadly he dies it would have been fascinating to see what he did if, he, if that didn't happen but yeah
1: I do like the the musings on the body and um that's interesting to me and like I like thinking about that as I mean I'm not gonna put anything um that's not in the text in there, but as a thinking about like your your upcoming death and thinking about um keeping away that darkness and what that means and what we can't control about our bodies. I always find that interesting. That
0: is that's honestly kind of brilliant because I, I never would have occurred to me, having having read probably too much Lovecraft, I like I would never sort of make that move towards uh mortal vulnerability of the kind you're talking about, especially not towards the body. I said that earlier, but like he's to me, he his scans is just so averse to considerations of one's own body. But I think you, you have to, I mean, there's a sense in which like you're notably right. I mean, if you're, if you're dying of an awful disease, it's causing your body to actively decay. I, I don't see, you know, when you write a story about this awful theater, another classic Lovecraft word, F O E T O R, <laughs> uh, you know, meaning bad smell essentially. Um, like, if you're writing a story about that and about bodies, like, being dissolved by, uh, you know, these awful evil forces. Um,
1: and just yeah, that, it, that obsession with, like, the the grimace, the whatever, how he describes, like, the face of Robert Blake at the end of the story. Just um, distorted.
2: Uh, Does the word rictus fit in there somewhere?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that kind of... Just a haunting of the body.
0: Um, yeah, and did you notice one of my favorite touches in this is that uh, it's a bunch of frat boys that see him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's what was grounding for me. I'm so used to frat boys looking in my window at night. So oh
0: god, <laughs> <laughs> took you right back to Baton Rouge, huh? Yeah. Jeez. Um, <laughs> that uh, yeah. So that. I, there's this like oh that was what's well, one thing i want i want to talk about with lovecraft is that like he's he fascinates me because he he's very invested in higher education and elite institutions and of course famously in, invented his own i guess supposedly elite university miskatonic university in arkham massachusetts he's also writes about brown a lot in his hometown and about the moses brown school also in his hometown like he was super invested in 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 a very again a very british way in like the centrality of these prestigious institutions of intellect and learning and how they could tie into like unearthing mysteries. And what's, it was fascinating is like, he was, I'm going to talk about this more later in the month, but he was like very day class A in a way. Cause he was from a family that had a very waspy family that had some money. And lost a lot of it when he was a child, and um, really declined in their class standing, and he could not attend uh, a fancy private school, let alone university. And In fact, he dropped out of high school; he never got a high school diploma. Yeah. Um, and so, like, it's interesting to see him, like, you know, putting rooting this character in this idyllic neighborhood near Brown University, having an interaction with the university, as, as happens throughout his stories. Um, like, like on the one hand, Lovecraft was obsessed with like these terrifying vistas of reality. On the other hand, like he was had this brooding resentment that he did not get to attend an elite uh, or any university. Um, and I find oh. that very endearing with him. Yeah.
2: He clearly on some level mistrusts science and education. And I mean, you know, like, that's, that's hardly a deep cut. It, it shows up again and again in his stories that uh, science is as much the problem as the solution in a lot of these situations. Like if everyone would just shut up and stop digging these tombs up, we'd be fine. <laughs>
1: It does seem like the, that the character in the story is very culpable for his fate in a very direct way, which you would, that I wouldn't expect. Um, like you would think that this, this horror should be, um, available to anyone and not this one person who is foolish enough to seek out this church and to, to disturb the stone and whatever, um, that like, he seems directly responsible for his fate in this.
0: Yeah. And I think, uh, as Pete would, Pete would probably remind us that's, that's a fairly classic, like both, especially with, when you synthesize with the science, like being, and of course, Robert Blake is an artist, not a scientist, but he's, he's academically inclined. And like Mm -hmm. between the, between the science, uh, doing the the Tolkien move the dwarves delve too deep you know the scientists went too far which goes back like at least to Frankenstein right and uh between that and like the biblical sort of harsh moralism of deserving your fate like that that in many ways this is maybe Lovecraft at his most classically horror is that a fair statement Pete
2: Oh yeah yeah absolutely i he he was very he was very focused on the limits of human behavior and how we bring these things on themselves so it's like i wouldn't i wouldn't particularly call him christian but i would call that viewpoint very puritanically informed
0: yeah i mean i think to call lovecraft like <laughs> a very strong puritanical Calvinist, whether or not he went to church or believed in God is a pretty fair statement in a lot of ways.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's like his, his flaws are what make him so interesting. Like I, I wouldn't wish his life on anyone, but like, All of those things being rejected from the school, like uh, having having trouble being out during the day. So spending a lot of time doing astronomy late at night, like there are all these little things that make him like the perfect vehicle for this sort of
0: horror. And and like we're all the better for it. I can't even imagine how online this guy would be if he were like, oh, like he'd be trying to peer out the
2: window and he'd have to take his mag maga cap off so that he could open the blinds.
1: <laughs> I just feel like he would be like on the, the X board on 4chan literally all day
2: long. Oh,
0: oh yeah. Definite 4 chaner. Yeah. We probably were sp- like, it, because the internet didn't exist, we got some really interesting fiction instead of a bunch of really awful posts. So that's probably like, <laughs> That's thank you for not existing in the 20s and 30s. Internet. (laughs) Imagine like the haunter of the chads. I mean, he'd be a nightmare. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, man. Um, Olivia, did this make you want to read more Lovecraft and explore further? Uh, Explore. Explore further. Wow. That was that was was Lovecraftian. And then I did weird spellings in my own head. Um, Does this make you want to go Further into his uh, his canon.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I've always intended to to read more. It's just uh, knowing knowing what's good, knowing what to expect, because you never know when you're just going to run into something completely racist and you're like, oh, this is this is one of the racist ones. One of the explicitly yeah. racist ones. Yeah, it's like ones. you
0: named your cat. What? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, like, unfortunately, his bigotry is come out in pretty much every story that I've read at various points. Uh, Even some in more this story,
1: others. like I, I knew it was said in Providence, and then he like kept referring to the Italians and the Italian <laughs> church. I was like, "Wait, <laughs> uh, are th- are they in? Like, did he he travel? Did I miss that?" And like, I looked back, and it's like, no, he he truly cannot comprehend that these people are are in Rhode Island with him,
0: right? I mean, it, it's so quaint now to to like, to, it's, it's it, we can make easily make jokes about his anti-Catholic immigrant bigotries, which you know he was. Uh, so much of his ire throughout his writing was directed at Italians and Irish Catholics uh, and it, yeah, it's, a, it's a joke at this point but it's like that any I mean this is I think this is so central to him and we'll have to dive deeper into it but like any otherness any kind of separateness from from his sense of selfhood and it, it just he could not handle it and that's in some so many re, so many ways where the fiction comes from um at least in this one, uh, you know, it's, it, it it's just, it's quaint rather than like, oh boy. <laughs> but yeah. So Olivia, I have a question for you.
2: We have, uh, one of the things about Lovecraft is we have a number of fans of the Cthulhu mythos uh, roaming around who have never even touched one of his books because the culture has responded like so strongly to him. There are... Uh, like there are bands that like Iron Maiden is into H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Metallica, like just a, a whole bunch of bands. There's, there's video games, there's card games, there's board games. There's just so many ways to access what he's done, at least in part. Do you have a relationship with any of those other things? Like have you, were you into any, any, uh, Cthulhu mythos style songs or have you played any of the video games or anything like that?
1: Uh, I mean, definitely whenever it was in World of Warcraft, like, those were my favorite bosses. Like, you have Yogg-Saron, who is, like, a boss that is completely made up of mouths. Um, So, it's just, like, this giant mouth monster. And then there's Cthulhu, who is, like, a giant eyeball monster. So, like, that's kind of how I got introduced to it. Like, the whole tentacles and uh, Mm -hmm. spookiness. So, like, that appeals to me. I don't know if I... I don't know. I think that so much of what I love has been informed by Lovecraft, but not maybe a direct representation of it. Um, I mean, obviously, someone like Guillermo de Toro has been informed by Lovecraft, but I don't know that he has um, directly referenced anything yet. I know that he was like trying to make a at the Mountains of Madness movie adaptation but uh yeah
2: that stuff keeps popping out in the hellboy movies for example
1: yeah um but as far as like a i don't know are there are there big ones that i'm forgetting or in the the mouth of madness that uh was that John Carpenter. Yes. Um, that movie, I, I love that movie, and that's obviously informed by Lovecraft. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, either the thing is definitely informed by Lovecraft. Yeah. Oh yeah.
2: yeah like, <laughs> did you watch any of those eighty movies, like uh, Reanimator or From Beyond?
1: Yeah, yes, I've seen Reanimator. Um,
2: okay, probably not the best example of high culture to throw out there, but you know what I mean. It's
1: well, that's like the horror that I love, and I think uh, that's part of what Lovecraft can give you is that it's very um, poorly defined because it needs to be poorly defined to be scary. And so then you get these messy representations, which actually do something interesting. There's no... Oh, they're fun! Yeah, there's no straightforward way to represent it. So it it does something interesting, whether or not it's good uh, is, um, is debatable sometimes, but I'd rather watch something interesting than something good, but somewhat dull
0: well then you're no wonder you like our podcast that's, that's so <laughs> much of what we deal with um yeah well i gosh i could man i could rant on and on but i want to make sure olivia are there are there other takes you want to drop in here about this story or about lovecraft
1: oh gosh i, I have no takes i am a, a no take girl
0: <laughs> uh, take freezing wow. <laughs> Well, okay. first of all, I guess in that case, I mean, thank you for coming on and helping us process our many layered thoughts and feelings by H.P. Lovecraft, which involved us uh, probably like excavating stuff that maybe we should save for our own jam session. But you were very patient with us. I appreciate that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I had a fabulous time. Yeah.
0: Well, Olivia, I always like, I feel
2: like you should get your, your like your own line of t-shirts or some sort of marketing thing, because at the end of these, we'd like to promote your work and you're sort of like, yeah, I'm on No Cartridge After Dark. You guys should probably listen to that. (laughs) It's just like, well, let's, let's get some money out of these people for you, you
0: know?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, any money can go to No Cartridge, but I, I'm very excited um, that in October for, for No Cartridge, I'm doing a... Um, a series with my friend Kurt Franklin called I don't know I think it's tentatively titled No Cartridge Are You Afraid of the After Dark, um but it will be a series on gaming creepy pastas so if you're into Ooh. horror and gaming then maybe wow. I think that uh, Lovecraft would be a creepy pasta writer so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah that's that's probably very true wow gosh <laughs> amazing.
1: So please check that out if you're into uh, gaming or horror.
0: Yeah, everyone's listening to No Cartridge. I said this before on here, but No Cartridge is, it's in addition to being the reason that, that our show exists, uh, it is the best gaming podcast imaginable in a lot of ways. And it's so sharp and interesting. And of course, Liv- Olivia is a key contributor to all of that. Um, go check them out and go become a patron of No Cartridge for sure. I'm trying to think of a way to
2: say we stand without saying we stand. We are huge fans. There you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we like the podcast. So that's my, that's my hip way of saying it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So, Olivia, it's been a pleasure, as always. Uh, this was really, really great.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me back on.
0: Absolutely. And, and we will invent another reason soon.
1: Oh, I can't wait.
0: You're going to get more homework, (laughs) young lady. Oh, I
1: I love homework.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.